What it really makes clear is that this isn't so much about the money, it's really about the will to do what the other guy won't. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Earlier this week, we crossed the threshold from 2019 to the shining new year of 2020. Now, we all know the calendars are pretty arbitrary things, with the modern-day Georgian calendar being a four-and-a-half-century-old innovation that happened when Pope Gregory VIII tweaked the previous calendar ordained by Julius Caesar all the way back in 46 BC. But the turning of the new year is still a momentous occasion to reflect on what has just passed and what's to come. And here at Artnet, it actually has a kind of added mystical dimension. That's because every year, our business editor, Tim Schneider, suddenly becomes invested with occult powers of divination, enabling him to peer into the future and offer predictions for what the year ahead holds for the art world. Today, to find out what 2020 augurs for us all, we're joined by Tim in the studio. Thank you, O Tim, for coming on The Art Angle. Happy to be here, Andrew. (laughs) So... Before we go over your predictions, why don't you tell us where do these magical powers of divination come from? Mostly drugs, usually. I, I, I don't really know which ones. I kind of just take whatever's in front of me, and every once in a while, something kind of moves in a positive direction. So I think that that's actually historically grounded kind of prophecy way of doing things, because that's what the Oracle of Delphi did when she would sniff a crack in the rock, and she'd have these fumes that, anyway. See, this is a lot more history than I knew. Way nerdier than, than, <laughs> than I think anybody was anticipating. <laughs> so anyway, so how did you actually go about putting together these predictions? It's really trend analysis at the end of the day. It's taking a look at what's happened over the course of the past year that's been a major force in shaping the news of the art world in, in every sector. And I try to hit every one of them. So I try to cover museums, I try to cover galleries, I try to cover auctions, try to cover tech, on and on and on. But basically, it's a matter of looking at what I believe to be the strongest trends in each one of those and saying like, okay, well, what's the natural extension for this in the next year? Hmm. And how far do I think it can actually go? And then How can I talk about that in a way that 12 months from now, when I do my annual review of my predictions, we can actually objectively say, yeah, this was right or this was wrong, as opposed to, well, this vague statement I made may or may not have been accurate. We could spin it a hundred different ways. It's like, no, this is either a yes or a no, and we'll know one way or the other. Okay, so let's dive into these predictions because we can only cover a few of them. Let's do it. The first one is, and I quote, an American art museum or foundation will make an ethically motivated divestment from either its endowment or its pension fund. So what is the macro trend in play here? The macro trend in play here is that, especially over the course of the past year, we've had this really strong push towards ethical decision-making in the museum field specifically. There was a huge controversy around a trustee at the Whitney Museum named Warren Canders, which to go through every aspect of would be its own podcast. But the long and the short of it is that he was the owner, still is the owner of a company called Safariland, which among other products used for defense and law enforcement makes tear gas. And 
this eventually came to light, and it was so appalling to the, I would say, most progressive wing of the art world that it sparked a months-long activist campaign and eventually protests from artists who were affiliated with the Whitney, and I think, reading between the lines, some boardroom pressure even from within the museum, and Candor stepped down in the middle of last summer. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that a museum trustee had ever either resigned or been pushed out because of the way that they made their money. And once that happened, it just opened this door to, well, what the hell might happen now? So Canders was reviled by the left because his tear gas was actually used at the Mexican-U.S. border on migrants who were trying to cross over. And he was also associated with bullets that were found at right. the Israeli-Palestinian border. So he was kind of the boogeyman of the progressive left in a very concrete and actionable way. What happened after he was forced out? What were the kind of the shockwaves that that sent through the museum landscape? It really created this oh shit moment, I think, for everyone. <laughs> All of a sudden, this thing that we never believed was going to happen, and I, I say we both in the broad sense, accepting the people who are actually in the campaigns tried to kick this guy out because clearly they believed that they were going to be able to pull it off. Because I actually predicted that no museum board member was going to be forced to step down huh. uh, because of ethical complications last year. And I was dead wrong about that. And I'll own that. Hmm. But it's because there was no previous precedent for this thing to ever happen. So once the window of possibility opened in that way, I think it naturally forced the leadership of museums to look around and say, well, we don't want to go through that because that was hell for the Whitney. What might we be able to do now to get ahead of this thing so that we're not the next ones to go down? Mm -hmm. And I do think that the people who are in these positions of leadership at major cultural institutions do genuinely want to do the right thing. But it's complicated because as we know, if you do bad shit, you can make a lot of money. And people with a lot of money are what museums need right now in the U.S. because public funding for them just has been dropping like a rock for decades, it seems like. So you're always in this devil's bargain of, well, we need the money, but where do we get the money? And if we can only get the money to keep operating at a high level from people who are doing things that we may not really be comfortable with, it just creates a really difficult situation. So it seems like we've got this situation now where the basic funding model for museums is coming in conflict with the high ethical bar that people expect for it, which may go back to this whole, you know, Keatsian idea of, of truth and beauty being equal. Why do you say, in light of this, that it's not going to be this wholesale bloodletting of problematic trustees across the museums, but instead that they're going to do something which is a step behind that, which is the divesting from problematic investments? On one level, what it means to be a member of a board of trustees is that you are committing to give a large amount of money to that institution. If you're a museum director, you're looking around your boardroom and it's almost like a, a little cartoon thought bubble that you can see above each board member's head of like the dollar value that you can <laughs> probably count on them for in the course of the next year or two years or five years. And so if you also have to hold in your head that at least some of those people could be doing things that could lead your museum into just a bloodbath of controversy. It's a really tough calculus. Hmm. So that's why I'm coming around to this other idea of like, there's another move that you can make if you're a museum and you want to say, we're actively doing something that puts us on the ethical high ground, but they're not saying this publicly, but it's going to be a lot less costly of a proposition if you do it. 
So if you have some kind of potentially problematic asset in your investment portfolio for your endowment, say fossil fuels or defense contracting, you can sell that thing off tomorrow and take the money and invest it into something else that is also going to make money. Like the stock market has been on, by most metrics, the largest bull run in history. Hmm. So it's not like we're at a difficult time in investing where it's like, well, there are only three things we can put our money into that are going to actually make us money. It's like you can almost put it into practically (laughs) anything and still come out okay. That's the thing to me is that it seems like a no-lose proposition for a museum. You get the advantage of being able to walk out to the public and say, we did this really good thing. And at the same time, you also know that you're really not costing yourself anything. And in reality, you may even just put the money into something that could make even more money than what the original investment did. Hmm. So I may be wrong about this, but I feel like there is a really, really strong argument for doing it. Okay, so let's go on to the next prediction, which is kind of related. It's that a major gallery will announce a plan to go carbon neutral. All right, Tim, so what is the macro trend here? Another thing that we've been seeing a lot of lately in the art world, and I think in the world at large, is this growing concern over climate change and emissions. I mean, it was only a few days ago that Time Magazine named Greta Thunberg, the teenage activist for climate change, has become this almost cult figure in the world. Time named her its person of the year, for 2019. And obviously here in the US, you have the most liberal wing of Congress, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, talking about trying to get a Green New Deal. And all of these different forces in the world really converging on this idea of we need to do something about our carbon footprint. And whether that's on an individual level or on an institutional level, it's all in play. And we've seen action in this direction in other sectors of the economy. And we've seen some amount of it within the art world as well. But nobody has really taken that big a step, especially in the gallery world, from a marketing perspective. To say nothing of the actual good it could potentially do in the world, it seems like a really smart thing for somebody in a very image-conscious industry to actually take the step of doing So speaking of positive publicity in the fashion world, Gucci currently has a 10-year plan to cut its emissions in half. And it was able to go carbon neutral last year by buying 8.4 million offsets. What is the difference between cutting emissions in half and going carbon neutral? So reducing emissions is exactly what it sounds like. It means that you are going to do things like you're not going to fly as much. You are maybe not going to send as many shipments around the world or you're going to find greener ways to do those things. Carbon neutrality really just means that you're paying money for some kind of environmental good that will offset whatever bad you did. It's kind of like environmental blood money in a way. Really, all you're doing is writing a check. I think most serious environmental scientists will tell you that the big thing that we need in the world right now is to actually reduce emissions and to do so drastically and Mm -hmm. very quickly. Carbon neutrality doesn't get you there, but it's certainly better than nothing. And it's something that you can also do very easily if you're especially a very wealthy business. As Kate Brown said in our podcast on this subject, it's a good way of kind of dipping a toe in the water and starting to become engaged so that, you know, it can lead to a broader journey of climate consciousness. 
And I think it's also kind of a youth movement, really. Hmm. Business of Fashion and McKinsey did this report last year that found that millennials and Gen Z consumers, broadly speaking, are ready and willing to either move off of a particular brand alliance or start doing business with somebody specifically because of the positions that they're taking on things like the climate or other ethical positions. And so if you're trying to say like, well, we want to reach young people and young money, then that's a pretty smart position to take. So practically speaking, if a company like Gucci could offset, which I think a year of their operations for $8.4 million, how much do you think it would cost for a mega gallery to offset their carbon emissions? Gucci did about $4 billion in revenue and they paid about $8.4 million mm-hmm. in carbon offsetting costs. Back in the envelope speculation here, because again, as usual, the art market is a black box wrapped inside a veil thrown into a river. So we don't <laughs> really know most of what the business is, at least on a dollar value basis. But it's been reported enough, bandied about that Larry Gagosian's actually doing a billion dollars in sales in a year. So if Gagosian or another major gallery was doing a billion dollars in sales, hypothetically. That's about a quarter of what Gucci did last year in revenue. And so let's just say the cost of carbon offsets would also be a quarter. If that was the case, a gallery that decided to do this, they would be paying about two million bucks, which frankly speaking is not very much at all. It's like one painting. I mean, one obviously very, very high value painting, but what it really makes clear is that this isn't so much about the money. It's really about the will to do what the other guy won't. And I think that the potential value that could come out of it is clear enough that I think somebody is basically going to, they could look at that as a part of their marketing budget for next year and just say, we're going to pay 2 million bucks or less. It might only be a million. It might only be $500,000. And the bump that we're going to get from this is going to be well worth it. Very interesting. So Let's move on to the next prediction. At least seven artists under the age of 40 are going to rack up over $1 million each in auction sales in the first half of 2020. So what's going on here? What's the macro trend? The past few years of the art market, especially the high end, the big money makers have been estates and they have been artists who are still alive, but who have been historically overlooked, women artists, artists of color, the defining factor has been they're either old or they're dead Hmm. in a lot of cases. What you see if you look at the history of the art market is that it ends up being cyclical. Based on what I'm seeing out there and what my colleagues and I are reporting on, I think the pendulum is just swinging back in this direction of people really wanting to get excited about young talent and the potential that's out there in the world. It's inherently less sexy to say, well, I'm going to spend... $100,000 or more on an artwork by a guy who's been dead for a while. That's just not as interesting as being able to go out and say, this person who's in their 30s, maybe even their 20s, really seems to be on the rise. And I think that when the market is in a place where young artists are a focus, it really means that people are invested in the idea of actually really feeling like they're a part of the scene again. I don't think that we've had that as much the past few years. And from what I can tell, we're kind of moving in that direction again. To throw in another notion here, young art is a lot more volatile. So it has a lot more ups and downs. It's a little bit more like day trading. You know, 
if you find some really cool young artist who may or may not have all the sustained kind of uh, success, but you bet on them and then you win, you get a little bit more uh, dopamine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exciting. Kind of I also think that we have this tendency to draw these hard lines sometimes. Say like, oh, these people, collectors over here are financially interested. These collectors over here are not. They're in it for the love of the game. And I think that the majority of the population, or at least a large portion of the collecting population, really blurs those lines. Mm -hmm. Like I think that you can both be in it for the love of the art and also realize, holy shit, this thing that I bought for $10,000 two years ago, I might now be able to get $250,000 for or a million dollars for. And I think that that's really hard for most human beings to turn down. Love in the art market is conditional. <laughs> well, concisely put, the last time we've had this kind of youth quake cycle was about five years ago when we had the zombie formalist bubble. So hopefully that doesn't repeat itself because that kind of left a lot of wreckage in its wake. Yeah, but it's almost guaranteed to repeat itself, right? Like that's the only way these things go. I don't think that we've ever seen a major market boom for young living artists where the majority of those people who have been the subject of all that money have gone on to have really long careers. It's a sorting mechanism. The probability of long-term success in the art market is very low. And so almost by definition, if there's a rush of capital towards a particular population of artists that are still building their careers, the reality is most of them aren't going to make it. And I think most artists know that intuitively, but if you're doing anything artistic for a living, whether it's painting or making films or making music or whatever, you have to have the inherent belief that I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I realize this is a terrible idea for most everyone that I know who is also doing this thing, but I believe that I'm the one who is going to crack the code and get out of this. Thing. Like the salmon that can make it down the river past yeah, the bears right. and spawn. Exactly, exactly. And the reality is that some small amount of those artists will in fact make it, they will stick. And if we look back at the zombie formalist, boom, a few of those artists are still with major galleries, have become integrated into the market in a, a very real way. But yeah, the majority of it is just a wasteland, ultimately. On that very upbeat note, let's go on to... The final prediction of today, which is that, quote, Instagram will make no more than nominal changes to its censorship policies, leaving intact the same structural problems that artists have been protesting for years. So what is happening here? So as Instagram has really moved into the mainstream of the art world, I mean, five years ago, we were having these conversations about how interesting it was that artists were starting to show on Instagram and galleries were starting to put their exhibitions there and maybe some people were even selling through Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. We've now reached this point where Instagram is, for all intents and purposes, a necessity for anyone who is in the art world in any capacity. Hmm. And obviously, artists have a very particular interest in this because they are almost literally advertising what they're doing every day. And the problem that we get into is that there are obviously certain types of artwork that are more susceptible to being censored than other types. And so we've seen a variety of artists over the past few years, some of them multiple times, they've just run into this buzzsaw of censorship where 
all of a sudden, maybe their entire account is a threat of being deleted, which could be years of work. And it's a really scary moment, I think, for artists. And more than anything else, I think people just want to know the rules. Hmm. This past October, there was this summit, executives from Instagram, executives from Facebook, with a small collection of artists. They held this meeting behind closed doors at Instagram's New York headquarters. And it was all just about this idea of like, what can we do to try to make our censorship guidelines, our content moderation guidelines more enlightened? How can we stop running afoul of the art world? And it was this meeting of the minds. And the question is, even though there was a lot of good feeling that came out of it, what are the changes actually going to be? And I think that we're going to be disappointed with the results. There's been so much pushback from the artistic community against Facebook because they've even outlawed things like Courbet's Origin of the World, which is this canonical painting from 400 years ago of a woman's vagina exposed. But it means that there is a whole part of art history that is unable to make visible on the social media platform. What is the negative impact of that? What's the implication of closing off this major kind of thoroughfare for visual distribution to a whole slew of art, not only by classical artists, but also by artists like Betty Tompkins, whose subject matter is pretty similar to um, the Courbet. Yeah, I, I think that the real problem here has to do not just with the art world, but with technology and the way that technology works in the world now. I mean, I said before that Instagram has really moved into the center of the art world. It's become the platform that artists use to promote their own work or the work of others for that matter. There's no alternative, really. And if we're in a zone where the main outlet for visual expression on people's mobile phones gets controlled by a set of rules that are either that either seem arbitrary or seem overly conservative, we just enter into this, this weird, almost quasi-dictatorial space where people are concerned about the content police being out there, but instead of the state or some traditional actor, it's a bunch of engineers in Silicon Valley who are saying, no, this is what's okay for the art world and this is what's not okay. So you're making a very convincing case for why they will actually take some kind of a step to ease censorship of art. But why do you say that they won't? Because ultimately, Instagram and Facebook, which is Instagram's parent company, they're businesses. What Facebook and Instagram are most concerned with is user growth and ad revenue. Hmm. And there is just such a dramatic downside to screwing any of that up for them that they're inherently incentivized to be conservative about this thing. This year, ad revenue on Instagram is projected to account for as much as 70% of Facebook's hmm. new revenue. It's a huge number. And if Instagram does something that makes their platform less appealing to advertisers, that's a very, very bad thing for them. What you don't want is if you're a Facebook executive or an Instagram executive to wake up tomorrow and go, oh my God, Nike just decided that they're going to stop advertising with us because they saw too much progressive photography that was <laughs> celebrating the nude body. And now they feel like putting their money into us is just as dangerous as putting it into a porn site. 
they cannot allow this to happen. And so if it gets into a zone where they have to say, well, we can either piss off a few thousand artists by being puritanical about what we allow them to show, or we can lose potentially billions of dollars in valuation for the company, which one do you think they're going to side with? I think they're going to side with the let's not piss off the advertisers model. And I think that that means that artists and people in the arts community and people who are against censorship and for all kinds of progressive values are ultimately going to be disappointed by what Instagram chooses to do this year, despite its best efforts and best intentions to become more enlightened about what artwork should and should not be allowed to be shown on its platform. Well, I guess I have one prediction, which is that this is going to be an interesting year, no matter what. Hey, look at that. So that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, and see you again next week. <laughs>